Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Right, this is Tracy Murda, and you're here with Future Tech Podcast. Today, I would like to welcome my special guest, Michael Manielli of Zen, chairman of Zen and co-founder of the special uh, commercial think tank in London, which he co-founded in 1994. Welcome, Michael, and thank you so much for your time today. Well, Tracy, good to hear you as well. Well, I wanted to sort of pick your brain, and first of all. Tell me, how did you start your company? What made you uh, come up with this idea and sort of have a vision for it? Well, Zen was founded uh, really to try and help people make better decisions. Uh, back years ago, we were enamored of areas like uh, risk management and new technology, and we were very conscious that on the boundary between finance and technology, uh, not enough firms, in our opinion, were doing research uh, really in two ways. Uh, the, the use of technology, which I think seems self-evident, um, but also the, the creative use of finance. Um, and over the last uh, 22 years, we've done a whole variety of things directed primarily to looking at the, the, the fundamental question of when will we know our financial system is working. Um, so these things have ranged from uh, the exploration of mutual distributed ledgers, uh, these days known as blockchains, back in 1995. Um, through to visualization of risk, through to new financial products, the use of uh, gambling products to take uh, areas of contingency insurance, weather insurance. Um, We've uh, done a host of things on climate change, in particular policy performance bonds, or quite quite trendy at the moment is the stranded assets debate. But that actually began uh, here in a conversation between Zien and BP back in 2006. So I hope that gives you a flavor, but we like to work on the boundary between finance and technology and try and do new things and give a little bit of uh, hopefully social benefit. So what actually is Bitcoin? I know a lot of our listeners you know, have heard the, the phrases and terms that are being thrown around nowadays, but there's so much confusion out there as to what this new technology is. Well, like any new technology, people are groping to establish a a, a vocabulary and a taxonomy for it. Uh, Bitcoin is of a class of things known as a cryptocurrency. Crypto because it relies on cartography and uh, sorry, cryptography, not cartography, uh, because it relies on cryptography, and currency uh, because it you know is purporting uh, to displace some traditional money. Now I have some problems with that, but, uh, but that, that's what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is actually founded on some extraordinarily old ideas. Um, for example, in fact, back in 1998, Wei Dai wrote something called B Money, which was effectively Bitcoin, and uh, Nick Sabo had his Big Gold. And so there's been a number of people playing with the cryptocurrency idea. And even before that, we've been speaking about digital money for 40 or 50 years. So it's not an old idea that we could move money into digital format. In fact, we're doing that with traditional money anyway. The idea behind a cryptocurrency, though, is that I'm able to create a tradable unit 
where there is no central authority or control, and that's probably, I guess, the biggest uh, thing about these um, so-called uh, crypto coins. They purport uh, that there's no central control, and therefore this leads you down a, a fairly interesting libertarian debate about you know, money being free of governments and, uh, and such like. So you might also though note that governments are talking about digital currencies. So are they talking about cryptocurrencies? Well, no, they're not. They're talking about digital fiat currencies. Uh, now, a digital fiat currency is a piece of digital money, but the government is issuing it and noting it when it's exchanged. And over here in, in the UK, um, the Bank of England has got a very open research program looking at digital fiat currencies. So just to turn uh, sort of things around a little bit, I might say that for me, uh, cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin are really creating virtual elements, um, an element just that would appear on the periodic table almost, like gold or silver. Um, so it, it exists. There's a number for each, uh, each atom of that element. Uh, those atoms can be transferred around the world. But they're not really a currency. They're only a currency if somebody wants to use it in exchange for something else. So we've built these big experiments uh, which are able to transfer coins with no central control, but really all we've done is we've found a way to transfer virtual elements with numbers on them. Now this can potentially be useful. I'm not, not denying that. But my definition of money is it's a technology that communities use to trade debts across space and time. And this trading of debts and the definition of a community are very important. And Bitcoin and Ethereum and many of the other thousand plus cryptocurrencies that are out there have failed so far to truly generate a significant community using them. People will talk to you that you know Bitcoin has got uh, a market valuation of about $10 billion, but you know, $10 billion in, a, in economies of several trillion is, is hardly noteworthy. So I, I think that they've got a long way to go if they're going to be accepted in general trade. But I think that they've also got a fundamental problem. The currencies that we trade today in our pockets, whether they're pounds or dollars, are really tax credits. And we exchange those tax credits within the national community. And the thing that holds us all together, believe it or not, is the tax man. Um, ring up the internal revenue and say you're not feeling very American this year and uh, you'll, you'll wind up going to jail. And that's really what backs up the currency. These tax credits are useful to us if we want to live in a national society. So um, cryptocurrencies, virtual elements to me, digital fiat currencies helping us to trade tax credits, uh, and we'll see where, they, where, where these develop uh, as things go on. So Michael, who is using Bitcoin, and who's using these, these virtual currencies, so to speak? Well, one of the interesting things about um, the distributed ledger, sorry, the, the cryptocurrency distributed ledgers, is that they're you're able to examine them uh, to a large degree. So you can see the rate of transactions and how coins are flipping in between wallets. Um, you'd have to know the identity of the wallet owner to understand what they're using it for. Now, many people would have you believe that. Uh, cryptocurrencies are primarily used by criminals and drug dealers and pornographers. Um, well, that may or may not be true, but I can equally point to large numbers of reasonable, normal people who are using it for online purchases. 
and for you know, buying drinks in bars and, and any other place that will accept these bitcoins. So the jury's out. We really don't have a good handle on the scale of the market. Um, a number of what I would consider to be reasonably sane people without much of an axe to grind estimate that possibly 15 to 20% of the activities in these markets are perhaps not wholly above board is probably the way to phrase it. Um, a lot of people claim that this is a, an area inhabited by tax dodgers. Not, not really. In fact, the tax codes are pretty robust, and there are lots of other things that we do that uh, don't involve the direct exchange of money. A number of people claim that uh, these types of cryptocurrencies are being used for things like um, cyber extortion. So I've locked you out of your machine, and uh, the only way that you can uh, pay your way out of uh, out of it is to send me uh, bitcoins, which are at least sort of anonymous when I receive them. And there is definitely some truth in that, and it's happening. But we're still unaware of quite the scale of it. And people then say, well, that's, that's sufficient to prove that, uh, in fact, these coins are horrible devices. But I would point out to you that criminals have been using traditional money uh, for thousands of years quite successfully as well. Um, you'll be aware, I'm sure, of those many studies which have pointed out that you know, most of the dollar bills in America are tainted with cocaine. So it's not the, it's not the technology of money that's the problem. It's people. Michael, tell me about Dathcoin. What is Dathcoin and what is their relationship with DN? Sorry, Dathcoin. Dathcoin, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yet Dustcoin is a, is a client of Zen. Dustcoin is uh, purporting to provide a hybrid model. Um, the idea here is that there will be a central issuing authority for the numbers, um, these virtual numbers that we're trading. They have a system which involves uh, the early issuances in a, a trading unit which is technological called cycles. And these cycles are then convertible at a future date into um, into DOS coins themselves. Um, they've uh, coin has asked us to examine the benefits, but also um, the potential risks of this hybrid system. Um, I believe that they're launching in the second week in January, and all we have promised is that we will be doing a short report on. On the basis of a workshop that we held last week on the advantages and disadvantages of Doscoin. So it, it, we've been asked to perform a light critique, and that's what we're doing. And, and lastly, I know you touched on this earlier. Um, you mentioned blockchain, and, and I did read an article where you said that you know blockchains work better for insurance than banks. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, well, a lot of the uh, excitement in the distributed ledger blockchain space has been about payments. Um, mutual distributed ledgers, as I indicated earlier, have been around for a couple of decades, but they really didn't get widespread use. And that's fairly understandable. The uh, technology relies upon multiple machines. That's the mutual distributed element to it. The difficulty, of course, is that most people's knee-jerk reaction to 
uh, data being held on multiple machines is that it's insecure. Uh, and there definitely are some security issues with anything to do with uh, transferring data amongst computers. And nobody makes any doubts about it. What uh, Bitcoin did was to point out to people that that easy assumption was not necessarily correct. There were ways of configuring multiple machines to work together that could be as secure or in some cases slightly more secure, believe it or not, than some of the traditional centralized architectures. And we use centralized architectures in a whole variety of areas like exchanges. Um, so these would be uh, central counterparties, central securities depositories, all sorts of areas that we use them. And we also use them in things like the SWIFT network, which is the international uh, monetary transfer network amongst some 12,000 banks. So people got very, very excited saying, oh, this is great. This is the end of banking. Banks will be replaced by Bitcoins. Uh, actually, uh, I'm not sure that that's true, uh, and I'm not. Uh, and, and so far, in fact, I think events have shown that it's that that, that assumption is at best dubious. In reality, um, if we go back to my earlier point, that we're only trading coins with each other, and quite expensively at that. Bitcoin costs about two dollars fifty a trade. Um, in terms of energy costs, and Ethereum is sort of leading rival, which is a bit faster. Um, costs about $5 a trade in terms of embedded energy costs. You can see that these are not cheap databases to run. So it's not that we're necessarily going to get instantaneous, ultra-cheap payments. So what are we getting? Well, we're getting rid of a central third party, but then I still need a real bank to transfer my dollars into pounds or vice versa. So just think about the sequence of events. I go to my bank and say, I'd like to turn $1,000 into X number of pounds. Fine. Um, I have to trust my bank. Uh, my bank sends it over to you so you can get your pounds out. Neither of us really care whether the two banks are doing it on, on Bitcoins, whether they're doing it over the traditional SWIFT network, or whether they're doing it on, on fairy dust. We, we, we need to trust the local bank. So in a way, the payment system isn't, is, isn't, in my opinion, really the place to look for huge gains or savings in this space, particularly so long as uh, fiat currencies are predominant. And unless you look at uh, kind of geopolitics in any way, I think we can see that fiat currencies have got some life left in them yet. So now we move on to insurance. Well, in insurance, on the other hand, payments are not the biggest thing. Um, uh, there are a whole bunch of transactions that a broker goes through with a client before the broker then places a policy with one or several underwriters who deal with a whole bunch of claims managers. So there's a lot of paper or digital um, documents, videos even flying around. And then at the end, there's a payment uh, for a premium. And then maybe there's a claim and there's a payment on the claim. The payments are a very small part of the transaction process. But these distributed ledgers are almost ideal for swapping that type of data amongst multiple organizations securely. And this could lead to huge cost savings in insurance. And there's some evidence, given that we have some eight insurance clients really using these ledgers on a daily basis, whereas so far the banks have just been doing proofs of concepts or pilots or demonstrators of uh, new payment systems on, on distributed ledgers. 
So where does all this leave us here, you know, heading into 2017? What do you see as sort of the, the biggest changes in this field, you know, negative or positive, that may come about in, you know, a year's time? Well, the biggest, um, the biggest changes I, I think are not in the payment space as you'll gather. I think we'll be seeing some evolution there. I think the second thing that's happened is that the hype is starting to fade. Um, I think a number of people are probably nursing some very sore wallets, having made some pretty, pretty large payments for technology that certainly a technologist like I would say aren't, aren't really going to get you very much that you couldn't have gotten off the shelf. So we're seeing a calming down pretty much the way we saw over the dot-com. People paid absurd amounts for websites these days. You know, a 15-year-old will knock up and WordPress at home on her own. So uh, I think that's there. We're actually some really exciting developments, and I think people probably not understand that distributed ledger enabled it, but it's very important, is in areas like um, identity, health records, and uh, certificates of education and and performance. I see this as a huge area. We spend a lot of time in modern society validating uh, things like, you know, I, I sell you an automobile, what's its entire record, what's its log, what's its service record, um, what parts were put into it, what, what, what insurance is involved in it. Same thing goes on for ships and aircraft, homes, um, your life. So all of this documentation is almost ideally suited to distributed ledger applications which give you the ability to trade securely in a limited way uh, key pieces of information with other people or organizations. And I would point in particular to the Know Your Customer anti-money laundering rules which seem to be bringing a lot of international trade to its knees in terms of the overheads and processing costs. That said, um, distributed ledgers enable it. We've built an application called ID Chains which is uh, turning out to be fairly popular with some people. Um, I see this happening, but I think in a funny sense it will be a bit like uh, databases. I mean, mutual distributed ledgers are just uh, another evolution in databases. In around 1970, 69, 70, COG, and we had the first relational database which was single user. Later in the 70s we had multi-user databases. Now we're talking about multi-organizational databases with a super audit trail. That's what these have. That's great. So I've now got a multi-organizational database with a super audit trail. But I very rarely talk to you about how I achieve something technically once it becomes common. So if I were, for example, at the moment to pull out of my pocket my, my mobile phone, my cell phone, and say to you, Tracy, look at this. I've got a wonderful application, and it can list all of the uh, I don't know ski resorts in the world. And watch this. I press this button and source them by altitude. I don't think you would exclaim with wonder, "Wow, Michael, that's fascinating!" Did you use a database to do that? You know, was that actually on a real database, Michael? You know, you'd look at me and say, and if I was saying to you, Tracy, I used a database for you, you'd say, "Duh, bozo!" You know, how, could it, how, how do you think I thought you did it? So I think very rapidly these are going to become boring. I, I can see that I'll pull this identity system out of my pocket and I'll say, look at this, Tracy. I can send documents, but I can actually control their release. I can, I can exercise my right to be forgotten. I can give you controlled access. And you'll say, yeah, 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 I get it. You're not going to go, wow, did you use a mutual distributed ledger for that, Michael? So I'm hoping that they get boring very quickly that some of these new applications uh, in identity and document exchange could have huge ramifications in a nice way 
in terms of increasing our security and also lowering costs for all of us. Wow, this is some great information, and I thank you for breaking it down for me because it, it really gives me a sense of having a better handle on all of this, and I'm sure our listeners as well. So I definitely want to thank my special guest here today, uh, Michael Manelli, the chairman and co-founder of London's leading commercial think tank, CN. And, Michael, for those listeners who are out there and still have questions or want more information, what is a, a good way for them to get in touch with you? Well, we run a very open firm. Our, our website is www.zyen.com, Z-Y-E-N.com, or Z-Y-E-N.com in, in North America. Um, I myself am easily accessible. My, my uh, email is on the website. We publish uh, quite a bit of information. Frankly, most of our information is published for free as a think tank. So it's up there and available to all of your listeners, uh, and we're, we do welcome questions and comments and would be delighted to engage with any of them that would like to reach out. Well, I really sincerely thank you. You are a brilliant mind, and I thank you for allowing me to, to pick your brain. I appreciate it. No trouble. Well, th- thank you, Tracy, for the Thank program. you so much. Have a good really one. good questions. You too. All right. Goodbye, Thanks, Michael. Then. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.